0: Dr. Michael Minna is a Harvard Assistant Professor of Epidemiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases. When the pandemic hit, he put aside all the work he was doing to fight the virus. Since, he has developed a strategy to stop the pandemic and is consulting governments to implement it. The strategy does not focus on the vaccine but on easy-to-produce and even easier-to-use-paper-strip rapid tests. As the pandemic claims 1.7 million deaths worldwide, even with a speedy rollout, many more people will die before getting vaccinated. Except they don't have to, according to Dr. Mina's plan. Welcome to The Dive, the show where we bring you experts from Harvard and beyond to break down the news for you. Hey. Hello. Good to see you again. You as well. We can dive right in. I know that it's a busy time for you, so I don't want to take any more time than I should.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I just wanted to ask because this has been one of the biggest pivots in modern science where people have left whatever they're doing to focus on the pandemic. As the coronavirus crisis claims hundreds of thousands of lives around the world, scientists are re-examining their research efforts and how their work could focus on solving the coronavirus crisis. And you're on the side of the experts um, On top of that, you are at Harvard. How is the atmosphere on your side at the moment? How are you feeling about the whole situation?
1: I want it to be done. (laughs) Um, Join the club. I I would say that um, it's definitely been interesting for me. Um, Certainly, my science has pivoted. I still have my a lot of my science from pre-pandemic is still happening in my lab. I've been very absent from it, which I feel badly from my laboratory about. You know, most of my time these days is really spent trying to uh, help governments, whether it's the U.S., the federal government, or or other international governments, um, just try to understand. Initially, it was really to understand the epidemiology of the pandemic, and then it turned into much more of trying to understand uh, how to get the most appropriate testing in place. But in the U.S., anyway, I've spent most of my time Trying to lobby Congress. In the next few days, Congress will either succeed or fail at providing secure and stable funding. And senators and to place funding into the right uh, places. You know, and and that's been extremely difficult because they're just. Um, I'd say that there's a lot of confusion about where the funding should go, and um, and what it's best used. You know, I have this picture of a bathtub that's overflowing and. We're just, we have people mopping up the overflowing water instead of just simply turning off the faucet. And, um, you know, if we put money towards, you know, much smaller amount of money towards turning off the faucet, that would be the best thing that we could possibly do. But that would be too public healthy for our country. We don't understand prevention. We only understand reaction.
0: Last time we spoke, This was at the beginning of the breakout, and we didn't know much about the virus.
1: This is truly an unprecedented situation. This virus doesn't discriminate. It attacks everyone.
0: I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. Uh, How the immunity develops, um, how long people are contagious, etc., if it's mutating or not. What do we know now that we didn't know in April?
1: Well, uh, uh, I would say we actually, we know very little now that we didn't know then. Um, we just weren't looking at it the right way in April. But I would say um, that the virus is acting as it, as it should. It's acting like a respiratory virus, an acute respiratory virus. We have What we now know is that um, this isn't some alien virus that is subverting immunity. Uh, the immune system is responding uh, very well to it. Uh, we know that um, uh, we know that it's transmitting from many people who are asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic, which um, we didn't necessarily know that before. The
0: World Health Organization is walking back comments about the asymptomatic spread of coronavirus after this
1: remark by a top epidemiologist. Still appears to be rare that an asymptomatic individual actually transmits onward. And, and I that really gets at the that underpins why it's so difficult to um, slow its spread, but otherwise you know I, I've I, I like to say that this virus is acting very much as a textbook virus
0: right and so if it doesn't behave that differently from other respiratory viruses and we see how the West is struggling to contain it. One of the main reasons for the decision to push millions more into Tier 4 in England is the rate of new infections. Germany has reported 962 deaths from coronavirus in the past 24 hours, the country's highest daily toll since the start of the pandemic. Does it boil then down to just having no strategy or no good strategy to um, fight the virus?
1: So while the virus is acting... Uh, as a virus like this should act or would would be expected to act uh we have the the major extraordinary feature of this whole pandemic is just how many people are susceptible, which right uh so that is what's causing the major issues it is in our country, of course uh a near complete lack of strategy is um is only making it much, much more difficult to contain it. Uh, When you have as many people susceptible as we do, you need everything to be extremely regimented. You need to have a plan of action. We need a a government that I think should tackle this very much with the same mindset as we go to war.
0: What uh, positive examples come to mind when you think about how countries are tackling the virus?
1: Um, Well, there's not a lot of great countries in terms of, uh, I would say that the East Asian countries come to mind.
0: South Korea caught corona just as Italy went down with it. Both suffered explosive outbreaks. But as infections and fatalities soared in Italy, South Korea suddenly began to turn the tide.
1: They did a tremendous job. And the reason that they did such a good job are uh, a few pieces. They had uh, they already had a culture that was wearing masks a lot, and so it wasn't a big issue for them to just start wearing masks. Uh, they were very able. They were able to organize in an, ama- an amazingly quick fashion, and organize around testing. So they quarantined quickly. They wore masks. Uh, and they got an amazing amount of testing going very, very rapidly before the virus got completely out of control. And now they have succeeded in continuing to suppress the virus uh, month after month after month uh, through massive testing. If if Wuhan, Hubei province of China has a, a single case or a few cases, they go and test millions of people in rapid speed. And that's how they're keeping it down. And uh, so it takes some organization to do that and it takes some cost but the cost benefit the return on investment is immense
0: you wrote a fascinating article for time magazine where you laid down a very concrete and from my perspective though nobody's you know quoting me as the expert but doable strategy to um curtail the virus can you talk a little bit about it uh
1: There's a couple ways to prevent spread. We can prevent spread through immune responses, which we which gets to vaccines. Uh, But we can also prevent spread uh, not through uh, immunity, but through knowledge that we are infected. If everyone knew that they are infected uh, before they go and infect other people, then they could make behavioral choices they would be able to know their status and be empowered to not infect their family, be empowered to not infect their co-workers. If they have to go to work, be empowered to at least try to mitigate spread to their co-workers. And the way that we can do this is by giving everyone access to tests, not tests that they have to stand in line for four hours, pay $150 for and get a result five days later. Our testing program today is absolutely broken. It is a completely uh, or near completely uh, unuseful program what can be useful though are tests like the ones that I have in my hand here this is uh, a paper strip test it's a little bit bigger than a toothpick and it's a a piece of paper with some molecules Mm -hmm. on it that can detect virus these can be made for 50 cents when they're all packaged and everything may be made for $1.50 and distributed ideally by the U.S. government to everyone's home. A pack of 10 of these with a couple additional ones that look the same, but, are, but serve as confirmatory tests so that you can confirm a positive is actually a positive. These could be made very easily by the U.S. government in conjunction with the companies that are already making them. I have thousands of them here in my house. We could be making millions and millions of them a day. And we could ask people simply twice a week to uh, brush your teeth and use a COVID test. And that's it, it takes one minute out of people's week. It's not asking them to go through all of the trouble of wearing a mask all day long. It's not instead of a mask, don't get me wrong. It's uh, an adjunct to whatever people are already doing, but it's a very, very powerful tool to let you know are you or is your child, when they come home from school, infected with this virus? And if so, you can then make behavioral choices on your own terms, not with the government. A lot of people in this country don't want government input into their lives. They don't want to be surveyed. They don't want to have to give up their friends, if you will, um, during the contact tracing efforts. So people are lying or they're just not divulging mm-hmm. their, their um, contacts. They're just not getting tested because they don't want to have to be told that they can't work for 10 days. Whereas this test can be done in the privacy of one's own home on their terms with voluntary reporting. And if we have voluntary reporting, we'll still get public health information so we can still keep monitoring the virus. But the important thing is it will actually stop the spread of the virus. So after a few weeks, we'll see spread drop by 50, 60, 70, 80 percent depending on how many people are using these tests. So it's not just a, a Band-Aid. It's actually a solution to achieve herd effects across the population and slow spread down.
0: And to be honest, the it would be also very cost-effective because for many people, the test that is now offered is quite costly. So this is a portable small test that you can do, and it shows you results within minutes?
1: Five minutes. Five minutes. Five ago.
0: minutes. And it is quite accurate, right?
1: It's it's very accurate. Um, that's been one of the major concerns has been media attention that says that they are not accurate. Rapid tests, you guys, can have up to or over a 50% false. Whoa. negative. That's, rate. That is inaccurate. <laughs> um, the reason that people think that they're inaccurate is because organizations and entities like the FDA continue to mandate that they make the, the gold standard to compare it against during evaluations, the PCR test. The problem is that the PCR test stays positive for weeks after somebody has recovered from the virus. Okay. And so this has been very confusing for everyone because the the PCR test very early on became considered the gold standard. The the test that identifies an infected person but what it turns out that when somebody has a viral infection you grow trillions of viral particles in your nose and your mouth Mm -hmm. your body then clears that infection it destroys it over a period of a few days Mm -hmm. Uh, but what ends up happening then is uh once once that occurs uh what is left over is the collateral damage and all of the evidence of that infection. In the same way that if there was a big, if there was a battle on a, and a field uh, of, of soldiers and, and there was a lot of bloodshed, uh, if you go back after that battle is done, you'll find lots of DNA from those soldiers. There's blood everywhere. You know, that can still be detected with PCR long after that battle is complete. Uh, the same thing happens where the PCR can still keep detecting for weeks after infection can still detect people as positives. Mm -hmm. So if we then try to ask this test, this paper strip antigen test to how well it does against PCR in an asymptomatic person, for example, somebody who doesn't, who didn't know that they were infected. The chances are that all that those people that we find with a PCR test are going to be post infection. And so when we use one of these tests on them, it's going to look like the test is missing that person. But it's not actually a it's not a that person is not important to find for public health.
0: Right, because they're no longer contagious, right?
1: Exactly. And um and this is something that I would say that the medical laboratories have a really hard time reconciling and there's been a lot of pushback because if you're a physician, let's say me, I'm a physician, and if I if I take off my Public health hat, and I put on my clinical medical hat. Mm -hmm. And I have a patient come to me and say, Doc, I've been sick. You know, I was sick two weeks ago. I just want to know, you know, was it COVID? I want every shred of evidence I can get. Like a forensics detective, I want to be able to take a swab and say, and get the best evidence I can that maybe that person was infected last week. And so a PCR test is great for that, for kind of reconstructing the crime scene, very similar to a forensics detective but but that's not useful for public health so what we have failed to do is we've failed to define the goal of the test
0: mm-hmm. right when you treat a person an individual person it's important to know if there's you know the virus is still in their body but for the population as a whole all that matters is is this person contagious or not so the details that the PCR gives are not so important for the country as a whole or the world as a whole.
1: Even on that note, uh, so when the FDA and other organizations evaluate a test, they look at the, what is the risk of the device? What's the benefit? Unfortunately, what uh, in the midst of a pandemic like this, we really need to be changing the definition to assess the risk benefit to the population, not to the individual. We focus so much on What if one person squeaks by? You know, what if one person doesn't get detected and that stops these things from getting authorized? But we but in so doing, we miss uh, the we miss the opportunity to say. But it would catch ninety nine percent of people. Mm -hmm. So we're essentially not authorizing these to go out as public health tools because they might miss one percent.
0: And uh, I understand then the, the the reasoning that you explained of why the FDA is not backing them up. But what about private companies? Can If they're so cheap to produce, can they just not produce them and distribute them and people use them at their own discretion?
1: Well, it's a very controversial question at the moment. Um, and it's one that I'm getting to a point where I'm starting to suggest to companies that they just Organized to buy these but the problem is the company producing these it is illegal to sell them right now Heck it's illegal for me to use this in my home right now. Oh um, You know and well technically I'm allowed to because I guess I could write myself a prescription or something, but you know um, But they aren't they're illegal and uh, in the United States because the FDA has not authorized them for over-the-counter or just for common use Um, There is an argument to be made, though, that maybe they can be redefined in such a way that that the FDA just is not even involved, that you can cut the FDA out of it altogether. But that becomes a very slippery slope because we don't want them to be completely unregulated because they are easy to there. There are a lot of bad actors in the world who would just make a really poor replica of this that doesn't work very yeah. well and we see that we saw it happen with the antibody tests which look very similar for people who can't see this that it looks just like a pregnancy test it's a paper strip it shows a line if you're positive and no line if you're negative negative. and we saw with the antibody tests back in april and may that sort of the the there was this major push for these antibody tests from china and korea and taiwan that and they were very very poor quality and it led to massive confusion. And so we don't want these to be deregulated entirely. We just want them to be regulated differently as public health tools.
0: Mm-hmm. And as far as you know, is that the same reasoning that Europe is applying as well? Because I honestly haven't, see, I mean, there's certain locations who are, that are going for mass testing, but no country is really doing it at super large scales. Um, so I was just wondering if you know—are they thinking the same thing like the FDA is? Uh,
1: no, I would say that a lot of European countries are beginning to think about this. Uh, I mean, really, the testing has never been used to stop the spread of an infection in the way that I'm proposing. Uh, okay. And so, uh, and we just kind of came up with the model for it um, back in May or June. And so I've been advising many European countries on the issue. And we are seeing it take up. Uh, we, we saw Slovakia, for example, do a yes. massive rollout.
0: Long queues outside this coronavirus testing station in Bratislava. It is one of thousands that opened on Saturday to screen Slovakia's entire population of over 5 million. Testing is voluntary, but anyone not participating has to self-isolate for 10
1: days. And. You know, unfortunately, it, well, fortunately, it was wildly successful. They did um, two and a half rounds, essentially, of trying to test essentially half of their population on uh, 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 two or two weekends in a row. And what they saw was they got an eighty percent reduction in cases, which is exactly what we would expect. Wow. I mean, that's how quickly this works. Uh, unfortunately, they were they ran out of resources. They ran out of tests. Uh, because they were doing it in a very expensive way. They were having the, the army essentially be administering all these tasks, whereas I just want them to show up in people's mailboxes. Um, but, but so Slovakia had to stop, and then the moment they stopped, cases soared again, and now they're, 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 they're going upwards again. And so, you know, at least Slovakia was trying. They took a very proactive approach. Uh, Austria is attempting, but they're finding that uh, uptake is not huge and that's because in my opinion the only way that we're really going to get the whole society to want to use these is if they're accessible at home i'm myself i'm the biggest advocate in the world probably for this type of approach Uh, but i wouldn't go and walk three blocks out of my house to take one of these tests just because i'm busy Mm -hmm. and and if this is right next to my toothbrush and it takes 30 seconds to use then i'm going to do that twice a week I want to know. I want to know if my kids are coming back from school positive. I want to know if it's safe for me to go see my my mother, mm-hmm. you know, for a Sunday night dinner. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And the way you explain from a medical perspective how this would lead to eradicating the virus is that Because the virus would only exist then in bubbles that are separated from one another, it wouldn't get the air that it needs, sort of like the oxygen catching fire, and then it would die down.
1: That's exactly right. And that's how, that's essentially getting R below 1, getting herd effects, so that on average, you just have those 100 people infect fewer than 100 additional people. And that's what these tests can do. They don't need to be perfect. They just need to get the population to get into exponential decay instead of exponential growth, which is where we've been.
0: Yeah, and it's it's an amazing strategy. and but like you said, it's a new strategy. So what it needs right now is a paradigm shift from governments in order to invest resources uh, communicated by it, uh, distributed to the population,
1: right? That's exactly right. We need, you know, in the U.S., i S I've been really lobbying Congress, Mm -hmm. um, to pass a billion dollars specifically to scale up the manufacturing of the tests. And then beyond that, I've been uh, pushing for a $5 billion to be put into just getting the test built and sent out to people. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't instead of a vaccine, but it can certainly make the vaccine much more effective.
0: Yeah. Speaking of the vaccine, I want to get into it a little bit. Um, How much are the governments relying right now that the, as it is, that the vaccine will be the end of the pandemic? And what are the biggest concerns about the strategy?
1: Yeah, we've we've put all of our eggs in the vaccine basket, essentially, which isn't surprising. We're a medical, we have a medical industrial complex that is worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. There is no... You know, and I don't want to sound too cynical because the vaccine is the, the longer term solution, but it is not the only solution here. Um, we have put all of our eggs in this basket, and uh, but we're already seeing essentially everyone's attention has just been placed on the vaccine now. We're now on
0: offense against the virus. The vaccines we are distributing are going to save lives.
1: But for what? For... Five percent of the population to get vaccinated over the next month, another ten percent the month after that. You know, we are having three thousand people in the U.S. die every day, and and everyone's yaying, you know, giving hurrahs and and high fives because the vaccine came out. And it sure it is a, a a huge feat, and I'm all I'm very supportive. My normal existence pre-COVID is studying vaccines, and I'm very very supportive of vaccines and the immunology behind them. Uh, and all of that. But it is not a short-term solution to a, to an urgent crisis. Yep. It is a long-term solution to a crisis that's gonna stick with us for a while. Uh, I worry that we have, we have relied so heavily on the vaccine response that there's a few things that could go horribly wrong. On the one hand, vaccines are politicized to a certain extent, or there's a lot of fear-mongering around them. We might have 40% of the community choose not to get a vaccine.
0: Yeah, not everybody who can get the vaccine in coming weeks will want to. Here in New York City, you know, firefighters are on front line every day. The Uniformed Firefighters Association Union surveyed its members, and 55% said they would not get the vaccine, and the city won't force them to.
1: We may have a vaccine that stops working uh, as well after three months. Mm -hmm. We have come out with these uh, measurements of 95% efficacy, But that, in my opinion, is completely overblown at this point.
0: So the reaction that you get is only this 95% is only valid for three months, but we don't know if if it's going to extend longer, right?
1: That's correct. And there's a very good reason to be at least concerned that it might not. Uh, I think it will extend, but will it extend at 90%, 50%? We're not sure. And the reason is... We have only measured, uh, this is a vaccine with a major goal of eliciting um, protective antibodies. And these are little proteins that float around in our blood and detect the virus and neutralize it. Um, But when you get a vaccine, your body goes through this process where it generates a huge number of temporary cells, all that secrete antibodies. They are, by definition, temporary.
0: Temporary antibodies.
1: Exactly, and so they last for about two months and then they all die, they collapse by definition. And so we have unfortunately only measured the vaccine response and the efficacy during that two-month window of time.
0: Right, so if it settles at something like 90, then it's fine, but if it goes you know, at 60, then it's a whole different story. That's exactly right,
1: Um, and it means that, and so then there's a couple of other issues too. We don't know at all how much these will necessarily stop uh, transmission. We believe that they will stop onward transmission, okay, but we actually have no data. And for some, uh, well, there's lots of reasons, but they weren't, if that wasn't evaluated. But that underpins the idea of herd immunity. If the vaccines mm-hmm. don't stop the virus from transmitting, but just stop symptomatic disease, then you could really be in a tough spot, especially when it comes to nursing homes you know, if uh, we we could still find ourselves in a very, very difficult position. So that's the other piece. And then finally, with vaccines, by putting essentially all of the main vaccines, all the primary ones that are really being put forth, um, are essentially identical. They're all creating the spike protein. What if this, you know, it just takes, we're essentially going to roll out this vaccine when this virus is extremely prevalent. So that means there's you know, potentially quadrillions of viral particles floating around in the world. We start blasting it, blasting people with this vaccine. It just takes one virus somewhere in the world to figure out a way to mutate around the immunity elicited by the vaccine. And if that happens, which it could, I mean, I don't want to, you know, be too much of a Debbie Downer, but it absolutely could occur. Uh, Then we're right back to where we started. And these tests are why, you know, these are kind of evolution proof, if you will. You know, we can still use these regardless of whether the virus evades immunity or not.
0: And um, as a last question, absent the government, which I really hope is not the case, because you've really made a fantastic case for it, but absent the rapid testing strategy, what do you predict will happen with the virus in the next four months or so? Because, you know, we've seen different ways of it. In Europe, it was a completely different situation in summer and in fall, and now Germany is in a hard lockdown. Um, how how do you predict the situation is going to evolve?
1: I think cases in the U.S. will stay very high for a couple of months still. I believe that uh, we will probably start to see some seasonal benefits come into play, maybe Uh, in late winter, so maybe March, April, Uh, I think, you know, but we are seeing, we're going to keep seeing sputtering lockdowns, which are going to be hugely detrimental to the economy. We'll see depression. We'll see uh, stores close and restaurants shutter forever. You know, we will see our economy continue to be hit very hard in livelihoods, uh, largely, uh, largely injured, Uh, because of the sputtering lockdowns that we're having as a result of the virus continuing to spread.
0: Michael Mina, thank you so much for coming on the dive again. It's really amazing work that you're doing. I wish you all the best for us too. (laughs) Um, Thank you very much.
1: Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate the support you have given us. If you like the episode and like our mission, please subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast from. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Dive Podcast for updates and more.